one. It's like we've the, the AFL happens, the Dockers are valiant in defeat, um, and everyone doesn't come. And I know school holidays, long weekend, blah, 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 uh, which reminds me, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, I will be away, um, school holidays. Um, so contact one of the elders <laughs> if you need anything. Um, I was thinking this week, what am I going to preach on? Because um, I decided not to feed you with the same Exodus fare that I gave you two weeks ago, which is what was on the roster. And I thought, well, what about this last bit of Matthew's Gospel? Starting next week, we, we begin our series leading up towards Christmas, uh, looking at following Jesus, uh, following Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And it's going to be really exciting. Mark is, is probably my favorite Gospel. Um, Matthew and I have, have just finished reading the Gospel of Mark together. It's fantastic, and, and I think as a church we're going to get a lot out of that. But I thought as, we, as we're about to start learning what it means to follow Jesus right from the beginning, uh, we're going to begin this week by looking at the end. We're going to look at the very end and see how Jesus' life on earth propels us forward as a church. And then we're going to step back next week and, and come at it from the other end. Hopefully, it'll all fit together. But we're starting with Matthew because I love the Great Commission in Matthew. It's up on the board if you want to follow along in the bright sunlight there. So we've got, we all know the story of Jesus. He comes, he teaches about the kingdom of God being near uh, Matthew begins and says, right at the beginning, the angel says that this child to be born will be Emmanuel, God with us. And we see that throughout the Gospels, and we see his, uh, his, the treason of Judas, we see the betrayal of his followers, we see his execution, we see his burial, and then we see his resurrection, which we, we, you can read in the rest of chapters, well, Matthew. Uh, chapter 28, we read about his resurrection, and then we come to this very last bit. Jesus says to them, go and meet me in Galilee, and they go. It says the, the 11 disciples, 11 now, because Judas has, has uh, committed suicide, the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. In chapter 26, 32, Jesus said to them, I will meet you in Galilee. And it's interesting that it's on a mountain because it was on a mountain that Jesus first called out the 12 disciples. Um, remember that scene where he's got all of the disciples there, like hundreds, and he picks the ones who will be the apostles. He calls them out on a mountain, and it's on a mountain that Jesus is going to take his leave from them. Um, let's, let's just be quite clear, this is not the mountain of ascension. This is before then. This is one of those uh, post-resurrection appearances. Might even be the one where there are 500 people present. We're not sure. But this is just one of those times when Jesus appeared to his disciples. I, I, I think from what Jesus says that this is pretty close to the end. It's happening in Galilee. When he ascends, he ascends uh, from a mountain outside of Jerusalem. So they're doing a bit of to and froing the disciples. But why, the first question I have to ask of myself is, why does Jesus say to them 
go to Galilee. They're in Jerusalem, they go to Galilee, and then they go back to Jerusalem. Why? Does it make sense to you? Well, I, I think it might have something to do with that a large part of Jesus' teaching ministry while he was on earth took place in Galilee. Galilee uh, there, uh, in fact, it's also called by Matthew, Galilee of the Gentiles. He quotes Isaiah's passage which calls it that. This is the place where Jesus spent most of his time. This is uh, the Sea of Galilee. You remember all those stories where he fed the 5,000 and probably where he taught on the mountain and, and gave the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, 8-ish. This is where Jesus spent the large part of his three years teaching the people. And I think it's important that, that as Jesus commissions his disciples to carry on his work as he's about to go to heaven, what he's doing by saying, meet me in Galilee and giving the commission there is saying to his disciples, hey, look, what you guys are about to undertake is actually a continuation of everything that I have been doing up until this point. I'm going to tell it to you here because here's where most of it has gone down up to now. But also, I, I think what, what we find here, remember Matthew calls it, following Isaiah, Galilee of the Gentiles. And what Jesus is doing is he's calling his disciples, his apostles, out to Galilee and he's saying, I will, I will commission you here where most of the work has been done but why am I doing it here? Because you guys are not just to stay in Jerusalem. You're not just going to tell the good news to, to the people of Israel. You are going to take it out to all the world and to all who will receive it. And so he meets them on this mountain in Galilee of the Gentiles. But what do we see? Eleven disciples have arrived there. When they saw him... They worshipped him, but some of them doubted. And when the disciples saw Jesus, they fell down and just adored him. They recognized who he was. And, and Matthew is quite clear that this is the right response to seeing and encountering the risen Jesus. Um, it's the response of, do you remember my friend Thomas, who gets a bad name, he gets called Doubting Thomas? I, I like to call him Average Joe Thomas. Poor old Average Joe is there. He didn't believe the other apostles and disciples. Eventually he sees Jesus. Jesus says, hey, Tom, put your fingers here and put your hands there. I'm, I'm here. And Thomas looks at him um, in John 20, 28, and he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And see, that is the response of worship to the risen Jesus. And, and Matthew is, is, I think, quite clear. The right response to Jesus arriving here as they're waiting for him is one of my Lord and my God are falling down and just, and just, you are just so incredible. And what about the second part? Some of them doubted. Everywhere else um, where the Gospels speak about 
doubt and the risen Jesus, um, it, it's speaking about those who haven't actually seen the risen Jesus. Now, all of the apostles have seen him at least once before this point. And so, are those who doubt, is it some of the apostles who doubt? Is it good old average Joe Tom, who's again on the ground going, I'm not sure. Is it one of the apostles doubting? Or are there other people there? Um, I'll just tell you straight off, I'm not sure. <laughs> the New Living Translation, is, is, which is what we got up there, uh, and I think what the NIV, what you read uh, earlier, changes a little bit. They say there, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Um, of them is not actually in the original language. So it, it's actually better to, to read, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And it's possible uh, to translate it that there were two groups. So you've got those who have already seen Jesus, and their response is the right one. They fall down and they worship. And there could be others there who, who are doubting. It's quite possible they're in Galilee where a lot of disciples were. It's possible that as the apostles walked through, they got a few more people along who are, who are a bit doubtful. I don't know. Uh, frankly, I, I'm not sure we can be dogmatic from, from what the text says over there. But even so, the question there still remains, why was there any doubt? And this is an interesting word. I'm sorry to tell you about words, but, but this word, doubt, is only used in one other place in the whole of the Bible. Well, New Testament. Uh, it's only used here uh, and at chapter 14, verse 31, uh, which is the bit where Peter Jesus is walking out on the water, as Jesus does. And Peter looks out and says, well, if it's really you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, well, okay, step out. And Peter, and I love Peter, he steps out and he starts walking on the water to Jesus. And all of a sudden, his brain catches up to his heart and he goes, that's water, I'm walking on it. And he starts thinking. <laughs> he starts thinking and he starts sinking. Well, that's not right. He was thinking to begin with and he stopped thinking and then he started sinking. And Jesus looks at him and lifts him up and says, why are you doubting? And, and a better way to translate that is, this word in both places is, why are you hesitating? You see, the word doubt here is actually also the word for hesitate. When they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some hesitated. Some hesitated. And I think regardless of who it was that hesitated or doubted, the point here is that, and I think Matthew is just stressing to us, is that Jesus being alive again isn't something that everyone was expecting. I mean, if everyone was expecting it, then it would have been really easy to get everyone on side because you could just play on their expectations. You need a few gullible people and you've got it. 
Um, and I think this just adds so much veracity and truth to the gospel when we see that when people encounter the risen Jesus, the first time before they realize who He really is, their response is not one of, I was expecting it, their response is one of, is it really Him? Really? Could it be? I mean, Jesus' resurrection didn't just, just in an instant change all of His disciples from being spiritual weaklings to, to spiritual muscle men. What changed his, his disciples was the coming of the Spirit eventually. Because up until the Spirit comes, the disciples are still they're weaklings. It's quite possible, I think, for some of them to still be hesitating. You remember where we find them before Pentecost? We find the 12 disciples and a whole bunch of others in an upstairs room in Jerusalem. Why? Well, because they're cowering in fear for the Jews who killed Jesus. They're frightened, little so-and-sos. They are spiritual nobodies without God, without Jesus, with them, without the Spirit. And, and even then, sometimes after that, they have moments of hesitation. Remember Peter, sitting on the roof, praying, and God lowers the sheet and, and says, kill and eat, and Peter says, ah, ah, no God. God has to do it three times. I, uh, if that's not hesitation, I don't know what is hesitation. Three times God has to go to him, Peter, <laughs> knock, knock, are you going to listen to me? And eventually Peter goes and meets Cornelius and we see the gospel spreading to a Gentile house for the first time. I think we all have moments of hesitation. We all have moments of hesitation. But what set apart those who worship Jesus and those who doubted? Uh, I suspect, and, and I'm leaning towards there being two groups here, the apostles and a few more. I, I suspect that those who worshipped, worshipped because they had really encountered the risen Jesus. See, the answer to hesitation is knowing Jesus more. The answer to doubt, and if you've never doubted as a Christian, um, good luck, because I don't know how you've managed. If you've never doubted, the answer, well, if you've never doubted, well done. But the answer to doubt is encountering the risen Jesus. Is meeting Him. Is knowing Him better. Jesus goes on. So He's met them there. He's, he's encountered them. We see some of them worshipping. And I bet all of them started worshipping after, after this passage. Jesus comes and He told His disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. 
be and, and be sure of this, I am with you always. And, and my next question when I look at this passage is, why authority? Why does Jesus turn around and say, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth? Jesus is basically turning to his disciples here and he's saying, I have got all power. I have got right. We talk about sovereignty. Australia is a sovereign nation. God says, Jesus turns around and says, I am sovereign over everything. If you can think of anything, I'm in charge of it. God says, Jesus says, I am absolutely the ruler. I am absolutely all-powerful. And it's true that that Jesus has always been God and He's always been all-powerful, but but something has changed in the resurrection. Before this, Jesus was, well, He limited Himself. He he didn't heal everyone. He didn't go everywhere. He didn't do everything. He he exercised self-restraint. And and when He healed people, most of the time He said to them, don't tell anyone. Um, and, and, And now He comes to His disciples and He says, Every single ounce of authority and power has been given to me. As in, there is no place now where Jesus does not claim his kingship. Ephesians 1.21 says that now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else. Not only in this world, but in the world to come. And God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made Him head over all things for the benefit of who? For us. And the church is His body. That's us. And and the church is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with Himself. Paul knew this. Jesus says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Right now, Jesus is king. Notice the tense there. Jesus doesn't say, I have been in the future, one day will be given authority. He says, right now, I have all authority. It's one of the most important uh, basic aspects of our faith that Jesus is in charge right now. Um, but, but what does that mean in practice? What does it mean right now, here today, for Jesus to have all authority and all power? Because we've got situations like Kenya. And we've got situations like Syria. And by the way, do you know how many Christians there are in Syria? Do you know how much of the Bible took place in that part of the world? Jesus isn't saying that the world is already exactly as he wants it to be. When Jesus says he has been given all authority and power, he's making a claim that he is the one who is working to take the world from where it is to where he wants it to be. At the moment, it's ruled by sin and death, sort of by de facto. Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, 
I am by rights the king, and I will bring this place to where it should be. And nothing can stop me. Nothing can stop me. Quickly jump over to Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. This is just the most fantastic, fantastic verse. Revelation chapter, 14, uh, chapter 17, verse 14. It says about Jesus. It says to us there, um, uh, talking about the, the enemies of Jesus standing up against Him and fighting against Him. And it says that they have one purpose and they will give their power and authority to the beast who will stand against Jesus and they will make war against the Lamb that is Jesus and the Lamb will overcome them. Why? Because He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and with Him will be His called, chosen and faithful followers. See what Jesus says there? I've been given all authority and we see in Revelation, what does that mean? That means in practice that whoever stands against Him will fail because He's already Lord. He's already King. He has already got all authority and those who presume to stand against that have got no hope of success. Isn't that just wonderful? And isn't it wonderful then also what, what the implications of this follow through for us? I mean, on a personal level, Romans 8 says, well, if Jesus has all authority and all power, then what can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Death, sword, famine, persecution, you name it, it's not got any power because Jesus ultimately has authority and power. And yet right here, Jesus doesn't go there, but Jesus says, I have all authority and power and I'm telling you this because I am sending you into the world. I am deputizing you. You know those old spaghetti westerns where the mayor, the, the sheriff has just been shot and he's lying on the ground, dying, and he looks up, I'm making this up as I go, he looks up and says, son, you're sheriff now. Kind of like that, except Jesus isn't dying. He's alive, and he's looking at each one of us, he's looking at the 11 disciples, he's giving them all badges, he's saying, my, my disciples, my children, my brothers, I'm making you, not sheriffs now, but messengers now. I'm deputizing you. I'm deputizing you to go out and change the world. And by the way, if you're doing my job, relax. I've already got all authority and power. You're doing my work. When you speak, it's not your words that will be making a difference. It's mine. And guess what? I've got all authority. And I have all power. And he goes on and he says to them, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given to you. I mean, this is the task that we've been given, to go and make disciples. That, that's the main instruction there. Often we focus on the first word, we focus on the go, but the main verb, the main instruction here, the main command is disciple. Uh, and it's not make disciples, there's, there's no noun there, sorry for English lesson, there's just discipling. He says, as you go, but more than that, get going, 
as you get going now, disciple people. That's not the same as get converts, by the way. It's not the same as get hands in the air. I'm making a decision. I mean, hopefully, if you're going to be a disciple, you need to first be a convert. If you're going to follow, you first need to follow. But being a disciple and discipling someone is calling them to follow Jesus. It's training them to understand and follow his message and his way of life and and, and to know what he said and to put it into practice. And, and you know what? We, we talk a lot about discipling, but you can disciple even a non-Christian. Because I look at the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. Jesus didn't come to them and say, right, let's get you sorted. We'll give you a quick test. And make sure that you write apostle material and then we'll get going. Jesus chose some rather stupid people at times. Uh, that sounds harsh, but not, not stupid people. Jesus chose the best people for the job, but, but they said some rather silly things. One stage, Peter turned to him, and, and Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. Because at the start of their walk with Jesus, they weren't Christians. We'll see as we get through Mark that it takes eight chapters for them to click that Jesus is God. Disciple, discipling someone means walking with Jesus and, and directing them to walk with Him. And eventually that means baptizing them. That, that means that, that comes at the point where they make a decision to dedicate their lives and they, they, they publicly commit themselves to Jesus and are united with Him and proclaim His death and resurrection. And it means teaching them. Because how will you follow unless you know what you are following? And you don't stop teaching them once you've baptized them because I look at my own life and I need to be reminded of what Jesus said every day. And in fact, I need to go and read through the scriptures again because even as, as Matthew and I have been reading through, there's some stuff and I go, Wow. How come I haven't seen that? How come I haven't focused on that? How come I haven't realized that? But Jesus says here, the point of my having all authority, the point of me calling you here is because I'm sending you out to do this job of discipling. And by the way, if Jesus is telling his disciples to go and make disciples... Part of being a disciple is making disciples. Did you get it? If you, are, if you are discipling, if someone is discipling you, then you should be discipling someone. Does that make sense? It does, doesn't it? Can I just see who here has been discipled? Well, what does that mean? Who here has had someone walk with them and point them to Jesus? And, and who here has been taught to follow him and to and to walk behind Him and to obey Him? Who here has had someone read the Bible with them? Who here has had someone pray with them? Who here has had someone that they can go to and say, look, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm doing right now. 
How many of us have done that? You know, there's places in the world where it's illegal to, to disciple like this. You go to China. Uh, Matthew will correct me, Matthew and Cora, if I'm wrong. Um, the Three Self Church, uh, sponsored by the government. Fantastic. Isn't that wonderful? Church allowed by the government of China. One condition, don't evangelize. Why do you have house churches? Because the house churches realize that if God's people are not allowed to evangelize, if you're not allowed to disciple, because evangelism is not just getting converts, it's discipling, it's, it's teaching, it's bringing people to know Jesus and follow Him. If you're not allowed to do that, you are not the Christian church. And I want to suggest that at a failure to disciple someone is a failure of our own discipleship. If you and I are not walking with someone else and pointing them to Jesus. Well, Jesus said to his disciples, do that. And disciples do that. That's like a loop. Disciples, disciple, to disciple, to disciple, to disciple, to disciple, to point to Jesus. Jesus finishes there, he says, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all of my commands. Notice, not just know, but obey. Jesus said, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. But he says there, be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And when he says, I am with you, that is as emphatic as you can get. It's, it's the I, I am with you. The I repeated, I, I am with you. Even to the end of the age, at all times, that word always again is, is, is unique right here. And I like the way it actually stands. Always is fantastic, but listen to what it actually says. Jesus says, I, be sure of this, I am with you the whole of every day. Don't you love that? Isn't that fantastic? I don't know why they don't translate the phrase that way, but, but Jesus says, be sure of this, I am with you the whole of every day. Right up to the end. And what happens at the end? We're with Jesus forever. Isn't that fantastic? Matthew started, chapter 1, verse 23, saying Jesus is Emmanuel. And he finishes his gospel with Jesus looking at his apostles and saying, I'm sending you out. I've got all authority. I've got all power. You're going to be my disciples. You're going to follow me and you're going to get other people to follow me and you're going to obey me and you're just going to start this movement and it's going to be fantastic and I'm with you fully God with us Emmanuel and what does it mean for us where, where do we go from here well you know what it, it's easy we know this passage can I just see who has heard this passage before everyone stick up who's heard it a hundred times okay so you all know it go home you know, I've heard this so many times, and yet how often have I heard this and said, I know what Jesus is saying, I have been discipled, and it's too difficult for me to do that as well, so I'm just going to go and sit in the corner somewhere. Um, 
Jesus doesn't say, look, if it doesn't bother you too much, could you go and disciple some people? Pretty please? Jesus says, this is the standing orders for the church. This is the last big instruction that I'm giving you. Go out and make disciples and get them to make disciples and get them to make disciples. Why? So that they will know me. Why? Because I have all authority and power. Why? Because I want to change the world. Why? Because I'm going to use you to do it. And one day I'm going to make everything new, but until then, you are my instruments in this world to rule And I love how it's always pointing outwards and it's not about, oh, get people to come to church. How many times have we said that? Lord, bring people to our church. Lord, bring people to our church. That's that's a good thing to pray. Lord, bring people to our church. And we won't read Matthew 28 because it says, God says, in answer to our prayer, yes, bring people to your church. So get out and start discipling them. How, How does God answer the prayer? Surely most of the time it's, it's get out and start doing what I've told you to do. And this is one of the reasons why we are holding the parenting evening. This is one of the reasons why we're going to be holding the Christmas carols. This should be the reason that we do every outreach, every step from this church. Not to bring people in, but to go and walk with them until they come to the point where they know Jesus. Who right now is discipling someone? There's a few people scratching their ears. (laughs) What does it mean? Let's have two practical steps that we can take. First off, well, three practical steps, because the, without the first one, you're kind of stuck. Know some non-Christians. That's kind of important. Um, it's kind of very important. Know some non-Christians. And, and don't just know them for the sake of converting them. Actually know them. Befriend them. Secondly, and, and this is big, just pray for them. Praying is key. You, you know what? And it could take years, and I know there are people here who have been praying for non-Christians for years. Um, I am among them. And nothing has happened yet. But we keep praying. But the third one, and this is, this is where I want to challenge you, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep challenging you every couple of weeks or months. And I want to challenge you to find a non-Christian and ask them if you can read the Bible with them. Now, don't say to them, can I do a Bible study with you? Because anyone hearing that will run 100 miles. What I'm talking about is saying, I would like to read the Bible. Would you read it with me? For most of us, we look and we say, I'm not able to 
evangelize. I don't have the gifts. I don't have the talents. I don't have... I, I, I don't, I don't, uh. You know what? God's pretty good at speaking. Let God speak. Oh, but nobody will ever say yes. Nobody would say yes to that. Have you asked? Yes, somebody might say no, let's ask somebody else. I mean, you've got to have a relationship with him first. You don't just go to a stranger on the street and say, hey, would you like to read the Bible with me? But can I challenge you to make your ambition within the next six months to be reading the Bible regularly with someone? What do I mean? Matthew and I, we read the Bible together, don't we? We, we sit down, we, we open the Bible, we read a chapter together, we say to each other, what do you get from that? And I get as much from it as Matthew gets, I think. <laughs> and then we go home. And the next week we read the Bible again. But can you read? Hands up, please. Do you love Jesus? Hands up, please. And what this is, if you've got the gift of evangelism, go for it. By all means, go for it. Go mad. I charge you, go for it. But if you're like me, read the Bible. And highlight, make disciples. Matthew 28, verse 19 or 18.